Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bello. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. Now, picture a luxury hotel. Attentive staff buzz around serving drinks to thirsty golfers who've just come in after playing 18 holes. But behind a false wall, there's a blast door intended to keep out radiation from a nuclear bomb. Nobody who works here knows, but this is where the American president, senators, and congressmen will hide out if America comes under attack by nuclear weapons. Sounds like a James Bond movie, right? We're going to start off today by going underground to a secret facility standing by not far from here. I ever went to was the Greenbrier Bunker, which would have been the congressional bunker and relocation facility during the course of the Cold War. This is the writer and historian Garrett Graff. It was this bunker hidden under this very fine golf resort in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. The resort is still used as an annual congressional retreat. And through most of the Cold War, it was used regularly by members of Congress who never knew that underneath the facility was a bunker where they would have ridden out nuclear Armageddon. What's so funny about the Greenbrier bunker is it is actually buried in the hill adjacent to the resort itself. So it's probably the only bunker in the world where you take an elevator up in order to get into the bunker. And so you sort of walk back through this passageway in the hotel and you then take an elevator up and they had basically a fake folding wall that you could pull out and then there was a massive blast door behind it that would have actually let you uh, and, and still does let you into the bunker itself. And what was sort of so interesting about it was Part of the bunker doubled during the Cold War as conference facilities. So there were sort of two very large public conference rooms, uh, one of which had seating for 435 people uh, and would have been the sort of fake, you know, emergency House of Representatives chamber. And then the other had seating for 100 people and would have been the emergency Senate chamber. And so all through the Cold War, there were people sitting in these conference rooms, you know, going to their sort of regular boring trade association meetings, never realizing that they were seated in the midst of the congressional bunker. Oh, come on. So you're saying like the National Association of Realtors on a golfing junket would have their conference in a nuclear bunker and they didn't even know it? it uh, absolutely. And it, uh, and then uh, in order to transform it into this nuclear bunker, you would have sort of pulled out this fake wall and closed this massive blast door to seal that whole part of the chamber uh, behind it. That is just incredible. How many, how many people, civilians, do you think ended up uh, conferencing in this facility? Uh, I mean, there were thousands of them. Uh, you know, it was used 
you know, for 40 years as a regular hotel conference center. And it, through that entire time, the number of people who knew it was actually the congressional relocation bunker was really just in the few dozen. Um, wow. The hotel had this sort of separate AV contractor company known as Forsyth Associates that was a secret government front company. And the all of these AV techs, their actual job was to run the bunker. And I tell the story in my book of one of the hotel executives sort of taking over the hotel in the early 1980s. And he'd come from another property and hadn't been read into the secret bunker uh, that he was responsible for. And so he's going over the employee roles and <laughs> he's, he's going to cut this he's like, excess fat. It seems like we have about right. four times as many AV techs this as we actually should fat. need. Like right. what's exactly. with all these employees? <laughs> yes, I'm sure the first thing he did was offshore them. Today on the show, we'll be exploring the history and culture of the atomic age when the mushroom cloud cast a long shadow over American life. We'll find out how the atom powered America's superheroes and listen to the voices of the female scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. Now, if you grew up in America in the 1950s, chances are you thought a lot about the possibility of a nuclear attack. School children were drilled to duck and cover under their desks. Many families built fallout shelters stocked with food, water, and medical supplies to survive the aftermath of a nuclear explosion. It was all to prepare for what felt like the very real chance that the United States might be drawn into nuclear war with the Soviet Union. But for some Americans, the thought of a nuclear bomb falling wasn't just an existential threat. It was also a fact of life. Nevada, USA. This is the valley where the giant mushrooms grow. More atomic bombs have been exploded on these few hundred square miles of desert than on any other spot on the globe. The valley where the giant mushrooms grew was known more formally as the Nevada Proving Ground. The U.S. government would drop at least 100 atomic bombs at that test site. Some were more powerful than the weapons that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The test site is located in, in central Nevada. It was carved out of the old Las Vegas bombing range um, that was set up during World War II to train pilots and bombers. That's historian Mary Womack. Womack says that to the scientists running the tests, the proving grounds were the perfect location. Like the original test site in Trinity, New Mexico, the Nevada proving grounds were huge and remote. There were a few miners that lived there. Um, little towns on, on the perimeter. Other than that, it's kind of a mix of high desert scrub and mountainous terrain. And because of the low population density in Nevada and also in Utah, it was felt that the fallout would disperse before the, it got to any um, kind of major metropolitan area. At the same time, it was also just a quick plane ride for scientists coming from nuclear research labs in Northern California and New Mexico to watch their bombs in action. Little bomb. Big bomb. 
within the last two years, 20 of these colossal blasts have echoed across the great barren stretches of the southwest. This testing ground in our own backyard, just an aerial stone's throw from the Los Alamos laboratory. There was just one problem. It was also a stone's throw from a growing town of 25,000 people, less than 100 miles to the south. And of course, you may have heard of it, Las Vegas. For most of the 20th century, Vegas had been a sleepy vacation town. It was known mostly as a place where you could get a quick divorce. But by 1951, when the first bomb was dropped at the Proving Ground, it was beginning to transform into an international gambling mecca. And the tests, while officially secret, were close enough that the explosions lit up the sky over Las Vegas. Mushroom clouds were clearly visible from downtown casinos. Some of the blasts were even powerful enough to shatter windows and short-circuit the city's power grid. Many worried that the testing ground would end Las Vegas' boom years before they even began. After all, who would pay to come gamble while bombs that could level the city were being dropped on the horizon? But others saw the bombs as a golden opportunity. So what they did was they sort of turned it into our own little circus. Two of the city's biggest boosters were Hank Greenspun and Al Kahane, the publishers of the Las Vegas Sun and the Las Vegas Review Journal. Rather than trying to hide the tests, they publicized them. And they encouraged local businesses to do the same. Remember those blasts that shattered glass downtown? What they did was they put the glass shards into a barrel and then said free atomic souvenirs. And people walked by and that, that barrel was empty by the end of the day. All the casinos would do packed lunches for people who were visiting who might want to go out and look at the, at the bombs in the desert. They provided maps to places that you could go watch the bombs go off. But they also quite literally hedged their bets when it came to nuclear blasts. So the casinos made sure that they posted signs and let everybody know that in the case of an atom bomb that might disrupt the roulette tables or craps, that the house would win. The house did win. Womack said that over the next decade, as test bombs continued to fall, Las Vegas would experience explosive growth. In 1951, Las Vegas itself proper has a population of about 24,000. The flights coming in are about 12 per day. By the time testing is done, um, there are a million people a year with 99 flights a day coming into Las Vegas. So the two intersections of those things are nuclear weapons testing and of the growth of Las Vegas and the growth of the casino industry. Um, At the same time, you have atmospheric weapons testing being promoted by the Atomic Energy Commission and the military. And to boosters like Greenspun, atomic tourism wasn't just good for Las Vegas, it was a patriotic duty. He argued that these bombs wouldn't hurt Americans, but they'd show the might of our nuclear arsenal to the world. Be brave. Face squarely to the north 
and breathe a silent prayer every time another nuclear device hits the dust of Yucca Flat. At last, Las Vegas has found a good reason for its existence. Womack says that all of this publicity around the tests was a boon to the military as well. Having the tests out in the open, watched by anyone who cared to, let the Soviet Union know what American bombs were capable of, while the science behind them remained secret. But it also gave the impression that these tests were no risk to American civilians. That was a, a real contradiction, because this testing gives a visual to the idea of what a, a Russian bomb might do to us if it fell, and what Russian fallout might do to us, or Soviet fallout. And at the same time, they're saying, but ours is safe. Everything we do is safe. But then in 1955, when the fallout controversy started flaring up, in 1955, the New Yorker runs a 12-page article on you know, the dangers of fallout and should we be worried about our own weapons testing. There's real pushback from both um, the local press, but then also the United States government through the AEC and the military branches. Now, of course, the tests were not safe. Prevailing winds at the site carried the fallout east into communities in nearby Utah. A town called St. George saw a massive spike in childhood cancers beginning in the mid-1950s, which was later linked to fallout coming from the Nevada test site. Thousands of people who lived in southern Utah during the tests would eventually die of cancer, including nearly half of the cast and crew of a John Wayne movie that happened to film just outside St. George in 1953. And as time went on, winds and storms would spread the fallout from the proving ground far beyond the Southwest. Some of them got trapped into thunderstorms, so it, you know, this is why no county in the nation was free of radioactive fallout either. In fact, some of the highest levels were registered in New York. In February of 1955, as some politicians from Nevada and Utah pushed for an end to testing, city residents woke up to a strongly worded editorial in the Las Vegas Sun. Another of our sterling members of the legislature has made an ass of himself for all the world to see. This isn't the first crackpot who has voiced such sentiments without taking the trouble to learn the facts. The friendly people of the AEC have spared no effort nor expense to ensure public safety. Yet every time a test series is held, all sorts of wild rumors circulate over back fences. They really kept plugging it as a positive thing right up until the end. They never, never lost their enthusiasm for weapons testing. You know, this idea in the news um, that communism has to be defeated, that this is the only way we can win the nuclear arms race. And of course, at the same time, you have the Soviet Union setting off bombs too. But really, Nevada just kind of sees, uh, it, at least it's pitched, as though we're just playing our bit for the national good. These gossipy individuals who spread witch tales succeed only in frightening old ladies and simple-minded citizens. Sensible people of Nevada are glad for the fine publicity the state receives. We might suggest the senator take a vote of the more intelligent majority. Las Vegas Sun, February 18th, 1955. 
testing was eventually driven underground. But the loss of a major tourist attraction didn't slow the city down. After all, Las Vegas has never been afraid of reinventing itself. And yet, Womack says the city still hasn't reckoned with its nuclear past. So it's split. Um, you have as many people, I think, convinced as I am that the weapons testing was incredibly dangerous. Um, and, you know, the, this nation even hasn't fully lived up to kind of how hazardous it was. I talk to people um, every month or so who had no idea atmospheric weapons testing was happening here. But the sort of boosterism that accompanied the development of the Nevada test site, Las Vegas is kind of trying to come to terms, still trying to come to terms with this idea that this was an essential part of America's national defense. This was important for national security. Certainly, once we started a nuclear arms race, we had to make sure that we we stayed ahead of it. Um, But at the same time, um, this is a chapter that could provide lessons for the future that we aren't taking necessarily seriously. I don't think these questions can be answered, and I don't think that anyone can kind of be reconciled at some point where they go, okay, good, that's behind us now. We can move on. Mary Womack is a professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She's currently working on a book on the history of nuclear testing policy. We're going to talk more specifically now about the making of the atomic bomb. Basically, the atomic bomb is the harnessing of the energy released in nuclear fission to create an explosion. And in the early 1940s, American scientists wanted to harness this power before Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. The Manhattan Project was born out of this effort. And in 1942, at the University of Chicago, a group of scientists led by Enrico Fermi created the first controlled, self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction. Where do they do it? Under the stands of the football field. Well, because I know in that, that, that famous photograph of the people yeah. at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. This is a 1986 interview with Leona Marshall Libby, who was a 23-year-old grad student on Fermi's team. She was responsible for creating neutron counters that would determine if they had achieved a nuclear reaction. Well, were there any, this this is kind of a digression, I suppose, but I I was just curious if you had any particular, if anybody took note of the fact you were a woman, did you have any problems (laughs) or, I mean, or were you treated differently (laughs) or not? I know you mentioned that there was, you had your separate restroom with Hanford, I guess. Yeah, um, wasn't that fun? That was fun. Uh, I'm going to make one phone call. Excuse me. I'll turn this off. Leona Marshall Libby may have been the only woman present on that historic day, but many women were involved in the Manhattan Project. That's because most male scientists had already been recruited to work on radar and sonar research. So they were left with European emigres and women. That's historian Ruth Howes. I sat down with her to listen to the interview tapes. 
And the European emigres, fortunately, were people like Enrico Fermi and Leo Zillard, who were absolutely super scientists. We have some tape here from Kathleen Maxwell, uh, and she was the only woman scientist in her whole division uh, located in New Jersey. Uh, And she talks about her time working on the Manhattan Project. Let's take a listen to this. So with you and everyone you worked with, there was a real sense of uh, urgency to get the job done. And extreme. If you started working on something, you worked until you until it was finished. You, by 4.30 didn't mean anything or 5, to 5 o'clock. You'd work till you retired or you had to hit a point of stopping and then start the next day. But you went you you stuck with what was what you were working on, and you didn't. Uh, you worked weekends. Weekends didn't mean a thing. You worked at whatever you were doing that seemed to be where you knew what you had to do next. <laughs> Did anyone ever explain why you were work why you were working on this, or is it all sort of? Keep your head down and just work on, do what you're told. It's neither. We knew what we were working on. We knew how important it was. And there was no question about what came first. So, Ruth, what do you make about those working conditions in hours? They were generally widespread on the project. There is a great story about physicist Diz Graves, who is at Los Alamos, and she finished an experiment while timing labor contractions on a stopwatch. (laughs) So most of them hid their pregnancy and went right on with the job. And I can tell you for a fact that as late as 1969, there were no rules about having to leave radiation work for pregnancy. Today, we know a lot more about the health risks of radiation than we did then. What was known and and were these workers, men and women, uh, concerned about working with radioactive materials? Not particularly. The best, the best story I've got along these lines is Diz Graves, who was pregnant at the time of the Trinity test. And because nobody was sure exactly what Trinity, the explosives at Trinity would do, um, Diz Graves and her husband were sent to Carrizozo, New Mexico, to monitor the fallout from the blast. Kind of from the uh, uh, frying pan to the fire in terms of safety, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Yes, I certainly would. <laughs> I don't think anybody was very concerned. Now, um, you are a physicist. I want you to listen to this next tape uh, from Isabella Carl, uh, and she's talking about her scientific contributions. And there were, of course, no rules. This is a new element. Its chemistry was unknown. That was part of our <laughs> objective to find out how it behaves with other chemicals and how to uh, synthesize a a new compound containing plutonium that was only plutonium chloride in my case, uh, with no impurities. I could see why they 
selected me, well, selected that project for me. Because in graduate school, although I was working on other problems, I was familiar with vacuum lines. Vacuum lines were quite a new thing in science. I was familiar on how to measure uh, very low pressures in vacuum lines, I, how to blow glass, to put the glass tubes together, put stopcocks in, how to cool <laughs> or heat. <laughs> in other words, uh, I had that background in getting my PhD. This was all very new at that time in the, in the history of science. Ruth? Uh, it's very interesting. It's, it's typical of the work that was done on the project. People didn't know anything <laughs> about uranium or plutonium. <laughs> right. For example, they discovered that you can't make a gun-type bomb out of plutonium because it pre-detonates and you get a giant fizzle. So you needed to implode a sphere of plutonium, and that meant shaped charges. Nobody knew anything about shaped charges, so they had to learn real fast. All right, one last clip, Ruth. I want to play. Um, we started the segment with a tape of Leona Marshall-Libby. Uh, the interviewer uh, in this exchange mentions Hanford, and, and that, of course, was one of the sites in the Manhattan Project, one charged with um, refining making plutonium, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, take a listen to this. Since you were involved at Hanford, which made the plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb, I have been asking people if they, if at the time or now, that there's, uh, they have a feeling that that second bomb was necessary to end the war. What's your feeling on that? Or do you recall what you felt then? I certainly do. Um, my brother-in-law was running, was a captain of um, the the first uh, bombs minesweeper scheduled into Sasebo Harbor. Mm -hmm. My brother was a <coughs> marine, um, was a flamethrower on uh, <coughs> Okinawa. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a desperate time. I think we <coughs> we did right, and we couldn't have done differently. <coughs> In hindsight, some historians have suggested that maybe the second bomb wasn't necessary. Yeah, I know. But I mm -hmm. the guys are crying on shelters. Yeah, I. But I. They also usually will say that there. No one knows for sure either. Is it? No. That's a late date. Um, when you're in a war, to the death, I don't think you stand around and say, is it right? Mm -hmm. Do you find that attitude uh, towards even dropping the second bomb on Nagasaki when many historians have argued Japan was literally in the process of uh, surrendering or close to it, uh, do you find that to be characteristic? of the women who worked uh, on the Manhattan Project. Yes, very. 
Uh, most of them, you ask them if they regretted working on the bomb during World War II, and most of them will tell you, no, it was all I could do to support the war effort. My husband slash fiance slash brother, <laughs> you fill in the blanks, was overseas fighting. And you have to remember that VE Day came before the bomb was ready. Sure. And and so uh, the effort was then to get the bomb ready to drop on Japan. Ruth, how did you get interested in this topic in the first place? We met a couple of women who'd worked on the Manhattan Project at American Physical Society meetings and decided we'd found the only research one could do at a cocktail party. <laughs> and so we did that and, and just kept finding women. Um, we found 300 before we were through. That's a lot of cocktails, Ruth. Yes, well, I mean, what can I say? Ruth Howells is Professor Emerita of Physics and Astronomy at Ball State University. She's the co-author of Their Day in the Sun, Women of the Manhattan Project. The atomic age was a term used to describe a futuristic world filled with possibility. But by the 1960s, the threat of nuclear war was making Americans uneasy about what they'd created. That uneasiness was reflected in comic books. And in 1962, two men named Bruce Banner and Peter Parker were transformed into superheroes by radioactive accidents. Backstory producer Ramona Martinez takes a deeper look at these heroes and how their stories reflect America's relationship with atomic power. The early 1960s was a time of fear, paranoia, and alien space invaders. Fin Fang Foom, or, or Gugam, Son of Goom, or Krakadoom, or Brutu, or Grutu, or, or <laughs> Kalutu. At least, that's the way it was in comic books. Every month, the Earth was being in danger of being taken over. This is Professor Jim Kekalius, author of The Physics of Superheroes. And in one issue in particular, I'm a, a big fan of, Tales to Astonish number 13. Earth was being attacked by Groot from the planet X. This is the same Groot, by the way, who would later on turn out to be a good guy in The Guardians of the Galaxy. But when he first appeared in, in the comics, he was actually trying to take over the Earth. In the story, the military tries to stop him, and they can't do anything about it. And this one scientist, Evans, figures out um, how to uh, take out Groot and how to incapacitate him. It involves, like, mutated super termites. It's not very, not very uh, uh, sophisticated. But in the very last panel of this comic book, uh, the sheriff of the town says, when he hears... Evan's plan says, well, I'll be. I never even thought of that. And another townsperson next to the sheriff says, that's why Evans is a scientist and you're only a sheriff. And then we see Evans and his wife embrace and Evan's wife says, oh, darling, forgive me. I'll never doubt you again. Never. 
This was standard fare for comic books. A bad guy shows up, a scientist comes up with the solution, and the day's saved. And Kekalia says that Americans had tremendous faith in science, given the technological advances of the 20th century. You could not escape the changes that science and engineering were, were uh, introducing into everyone's lives. And because science informed what happened in comic books, it makes sense that atomic power shaped their storylines. Of course, science fiction writers and readers uh, would have been very interested in everything that was at the forefront of technology. Sean Howe is the author of Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. The first superhero comic book, Superman, was published in 1938. uh, And that was the same year that nuclear fission was discovered. Atomic power was this really terrifying specter. This is Glenn Weldon, an editor at the NPR Arts Desk. But it was also, uh, think about it, it was about five years into the space race. So technology, including atomic technology, was a means to realize a kind of utopian future. Uh, Atomic power at this point is a very powerful, unpredictable, unknowable thing. It's essentially magic. That magic allows us to believe in a world where scientists don't just come up with the solution to Earth's problems the way that that scientist dealt with Groot. The scientists become the solution. So in 1962, atomic magic transformed two ordinary men into ubermen, into something they could never have been before the accident. The Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man became superheroes, but they didn't have a choice. So this is from Incredible Hulk, May 1962. Bruce Banner is a scientist. Don't worry about what kind of scientist. He's just scientist. Uh, stationed out in the desert. He's got a white coat. That's, that's, that's the simple iconography of comics here. Dr. Bruce Banner and his fellow scientists are about to detonate an experimental gamma bomb. It's supposed to be a big day for him professionally. Everything changes for Bruce Banner when uh, a joyriding teenager named Rick Jones uh, drives into the test site. This punk kid in a Jeep out there in the middle of the field uh, playing a harmonica. As funny as this may initially seem, this kid is about to blow up. And I'm not talking about his harmonica career. Bruce Banner realizes that this bomb is about to go off, this gamma bomb. And he uh, panics. And he runs out. And he almost makes it. He does save the kid. He actually, he manages to push the kid uh, into a ditch, but he does not have enough time to save himself. And he takes the full blast of gamma radiation. This experience that Banner undergoes is, uh, I think, one of the most haunting uh, series of images in comic books at that time. Uh, There's a close-up of his face screaming in agony. And you see it transform him. You see all all these light and shadow dance across his face. The caption reads, The world seems to stand still trembling on the brink of infinity, and his bar-splitting scream fills the air. And then we cut to him in a hospital bed, still screaming. Doctors tell him it's a miracle he survived and that he absorbed the full impact of the gamma rays. Banner's head begins to pound and a nearby Geiger counter, which measures radiation, starts clicking rapidly. In agony, he begins to transform into a monster. 
The idea here is that this transformation is a painful one. It is one that takes a lot out of him. It's a one that uh, completely upsets who he is. No longer a handsome scientist, Bruce Banner has turned into the Incredible Hulk. The Hulk is a creature of infantile rage and tremendous destructive power. But it's not permanent. It's this cross between Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Sometimes he looks like himself. Other times, he looks like a hulking gray monster. Yes, in the original comic, he was gray and not green. When we see Bruce Banner, um, and he is not the Hulk, uh, he, he talks of the Hulk as this horrible thing that he never wants to be again. He understands how destructive he is. It's a, it's a tension that plays out, and over the course of many years, different writers, different artists have dealt with it in different ways, but that, that's the central tension of the character, this fear of letting go, this fear of... <laughs> toxic masculinity. Bruce Banner embodies both good and evil, yin and yang, and thus the ambivalence Americans felt about atomic power. And a few months later, Marvel introduced another character whose story hit even closer to home. Uh, uh, this is Amazing Fantasy number 15, August 1962. Peter Parker, he's... A uh, high school student. He's a very nerdy one in a sweater vest and glasses. And he goes up to his to what he thinks are his friends and asks if they want to go and after school to visit the uh, science hall because there's a, a very interesting experiment in radioactivity. <laughs> He's, in fact, mocked. They, being kids, of course, make fun of him, say, absolutely not. What, what are you thinking? And he goes anyway. At the science hall, there's a demonstration on how to control radioactive rays. But then, fate intervenes. A spider uh, descends from the ceiling, happens to intersect one of these radiation blasts. We see the spider um, drop between two sort of nodes, brilliantly lit. As it's dying from irradiation, the spider uses its last bit of strength to take revenge on these science nerds. Ow! And bites Peter Parker. His reaction is not quite as, as violent as, say, the Hulk's. Almost immediately, there is a feeling of great energy coursing through his body. He gets dizzy. Uh, he goes outside. I, I need some air. And he is so consumed with what's happened to him that he doesn't see a car barreling toward him. But he senses it. And he jumps and lands on a wall and sticks to it. It's incredible. Which is how he learns that this uh, spider has imbued him with the strength of a spider, the ability to climb walls, and also uh, extraordinary spidey senses. And so now we see that this is going to be a, a pretty big day. And even though his body has been arguably upgraded by atomic power, he still has to deal with everyday life. Which is why, you know, he's a good representation of radiation and superheroes, that, that, that relationship, because he is a contradiction. He is both the burden of, of what nuclear power can do, what atomic energy can do, what, what uh, radio, radioactive blood can do, and also uh, its, its potential boon, its potential benefits. The most famous line from Spider-Man is, Say it with me, with great power comes great responsibility. 
when you're a kid and you read Spider-Man comics, you love the great power stuff. Uh, all that's all the exploits, all the all the punching and the fighting and the and the and the daring do. But uh, what they were aiming for, who were they they were trying to resonate with, of course, were adolescents and adults who are going to read this book, and that's where the responsibility comes in. It's not just that Peter Parker gets more responsibility. His life is upended by his new power. His uncle, um, who, along with his aunt, has raised him, uh, is, is shot by a burglar that Peter Parker himself could have, have caught earlier. Uh, he continues to suffer at the hands of his classmates. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, the, the, the great tragedy of, of Peter Parker's life as Spider-Man is the death of his beloved Gwen Stacy at the hands of the Green Goblin. Uh, something that obviously would not have happened had he not become Spider-Man. Sounds like a pretty mixed bag to me. So what are we supposed to conclude about atomic power from these stories? I reached out to atomic culture scholar Margot Henriksen. Maybe some of these comic superheroes recognize that there are pitfalls to this kind of technology. Uh, but largely speaking, they seem to be lionized and they're heroes. Since the U.S. was the only nation that had actually used these weapons, Henriksen believes it was difficult for Americans to acknowledge the true dangers of atomic power. I'm not even sure to this day that Americans have come to terms uh, with the horror of these weapons. Um, but maybe the superheroes were an attempt to grapple with that, maybe an attempt on some levels to bind that power, but I still think that the superheroes who claim their powers because of radiation or anything related to uh, atomic power nonetheless give a sort of sheen of somehow respectability or acceptability to these powers to mutate and deform uh, through atomic power. So I think they're somewhat problematic. At the time, atomic power was both a means of saving the human race and a means of annihilation. But in the case of these two heroes, atomic power doesn't save them. It annihilates any trace of a normal life. Producer Ramona Martinez told that story. Remember that nuclear bunker hidden behind the drapes of the luxury hotel? Earlier in the episode, we heard about the Greenbrier facility hidden under a golf course in West Virginia. But who would have ended up in that bunker? And what kind of plans did the government have in place if tensions between the U.S. and Russia had boiled over during the Cold War? How was the nation going to pull itself back together and carry on? Writer and historian Garrett Graff. Garrett Graff is the author of Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. The COG plans, uh, which are still in effect today, the continuity of government plans, they, uh, they deal with how the U.S. government would keep functioning 
after a catastrophic attack, you know, which used to be primarily a nuclear attack. Today, you know, it incorporates a, a wider set of WMD and terror uh, attack scenarios on the Capitol. And the goal of it is to effectively ensure that there is always someone left to run the government. So through the Cold War, even up to the present day, most government agencies have basically an A team, a B team, and a C team. And in an emergency, each of those teams would be dispatched to a different relocation facility, different bunker, different evacuation site. Uh, and your A-team would have been basically your your existing office holders, um, your cabinet secretaries, your president, your vice president. And then your B-team would be their deputies. And then the C-team would be sort of the deputies' deputies. Mm -hmm. And the hope would be that at least one of those teams somewhere in the country would survive and be able to emerge from the rubble and declare themselves the new leaders of the United States. And, you know, we think of, for instance, presidential succession as this relatively straightforward thing about the president, the vice president, the speaker of the House, right. the president pro tem of the Senate, secretary of state on down. But what, what most people don't understand is that each of those cabinet secretaries has their own line of succession. Right. So when you talk about the, the presidency, you know, when you talk about the president, that's one person. When you talk about the office of the presidency, right. that's actually several hundred people. Were there to be a nuclear attack, how many um, people could this Greenbrier facility house? Uh, on an, you know, pr presumably pretty long period of time. It was well over a thousand people could have stayed in, in this facility. All of the members of Congress, their staffs, uh, support staff, you know, a security team. Uh, and then part of what made so many of these uh, relocation plans strange over the course of the Cold War was they didn't include families. You would sort of leave your family behind to fend for themselves as you were evacuated away. And th this was not an unknown problem. This was literally right. something that was spotted in the first, uh, first ever U.S. government evacuation drill, Operation Alert 1954, when Dwight Eisenhower and his cabinet and all of their secretaries were evacuated out to Mount Weather, which is the big presidential bunker in Berryville, Virginia. And all of the wives of the cabinet stayed at home playing cards through the afternoon and gave their husbands a very chilly reception when they came home uh, at the end of the drill. And then Congress tried to deal with this. They actually set aside... Uh, some of the meeting areas at the Greenbrier that were outside of the blast doors for members of Congress to bring their families, wives, children, spouses, uh, and they would have sort of slept on cots in the main meeting facilities of the um, of the Greenbrier. So I don't I, I don't know that that would have necessarily gone over any better. Hey, honey, you and the kids, <laughs> you bunk down in these cots. Uh, Daddy's going to be just behind the blast door, um, uh, you know, in, in the secure part of the bunker in case uh, in case all of the rest of you are killed in an atomic blast. It's just too much. Well, speaking of too much, um, you know that I have to ask you about Dr. Strangelove. 
And in Dr. Strangelove, perhaps the most famous scene, Dr. Strangelove is asked by, you know, the president in the film, well, how do I decide who goes down into the bunker? And uh, Dr. Strangelove famously answers, well, that would not be necessary, Mr. President. That could easily be accomplished with a computer. And a computer could be set and programmed to accept factors from youth, health, sexual fertility, intelligence, and the cross-section of necessary skills. Of course, it would be absolutely vital that our top government and military men be included to foster and impart the required principles of leadership and tradition. Naturally, they would breed prodigiously. <laughs> there would be much time and little to do. Ah, but with proper breeding techniques and a ratio of, say, 10 females to each male, I would guess that they could then work their way back to the present gross national product in, say, uh, 20 years. How close did they come to actually describing the real plan? So what's so funny to me about these plans is that in almost every case, you actually can't come up with satire <laughs> that is stranger than what the truth of these plans would have actually been. Um, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll answer uh, sort of your direct question and then sort of talk a little bit more about Dr. Strangelove. They, that sort of whole idea uh, of Dr. Strangelove was, of course, based on some of the theorists at the time, Herman Kahn. Sure. Uh, Thomas Schilling, some of the others uh, from the Rand Corporation who were working on this. And, and in part, it, it was because of their calculations. And this is, uh, you know, this is sort of dark to think about it even in these terms. But they were, uh, even under the worst case scenarios that war planners came up with during the Cold War, uh, about 60 million Americans would still survive the initial attacks. So there was never a, a there was never a scenario where they were sort of looking to get people into the bunkers for reproductive purposes, which is sort of for some reason the thing that everyone uh, everyone's minds always jumps to when when we start talking about this subject. Uh, so the goal was to basically get government officials. Uh, enough of a functioning government into these bunkers in order to ensure that there was sort of some semblance of order for those 60 million right. Americans who would survive. It, but it did involve this incredible uh, reimagining of how the U.S. government would function, that basically every U.S. government agency has, uh, many of them still today, sort of a post-apocalyptic analog of what their responsibilities would have been. So the post office was the agency that was in charge of registering the dead and figuring out who was still alive after an attack. Hmm. Uh, the National Park Service was actually the agency that was in charge of running the refugee camps because the thinking was that the refugees from the cities would flee out into undisturbed national parks. Um, and so you would be housed as a nuclear war survivor in Yosemite or Yellowstone or the Blue Ridge Mountains. That is just incredible. Well, what is the protocol today? for evacuating a president? 
So the protocol, uh, so, you know, we've spent all of this time talking about underground bunkers. And and actually, the protocol by the end of the Cold War was not to put the president underground at all. Hmm. It was to put him aboard uh, a converted uh, 747 known as an E-4B, an Air Force plane codenamed Nightwatch, that wa- would have served as the presidential uh, the, what was known as the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, the NECAP. And uh, through <laughs> the all of... Oh, 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 oh. The NECAP? The NECAP. <laughs> and the one of these 747s, the, the Nightwatch planes, has shadowed the president ever since the 19, late 1970s. Wherever he goes, they're never very far away. When they when the president travels overseas, one of these planes travels to an adjacent airport and sort of waits there in case uh, of an evacuation. And the president uh, would have been sort of put aboard one of these uh, E-4B Nightwatch planes and could have led nuclear war from the sky for three days while the plane circled and uh, flew wherever it needed to fly to land the president at a secure location. And as we are sitting here talking today, one of these planes is sitting on a runway at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska, and it's fully staffed and its engines are turning and it could launch in less than 15 minutes to rendezvous with the president wherever he is. Hmm. And, you know, 365 days a year, there's one of these four planes sitting on the runway ready to go in the event of a nuclear catastrophe. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Special thanks this week to the Atomic Heritage Foundation, William Jones, and Sam Blumstein. And as always, the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.